The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Have you ever gotten a good deal? Just uh, I usually open up with questions, and uh, that's my question this morning. Have you ever gotten a really good deal? Um, we have... Um, Kelsey and Dan, who actually were when Doxa started, they've moved off to Nebraska. Um, there was a post, a Facebook post, I believe, uh, with Kelsey. They had just adopted another child, and she was looking for a car seat um, that was exactly what, what she wanted, and it cost 300 bucks. So she holds off, says, maybe it'll go on sale, maybe I'll get it later, and she's just waiting and waiting, and nothing's happening. She says, skip it, I'll go get the car seat. Goes into Target. Uh, gets the car seat, brings it up to the register, and the lady scans it and says, $60. She says, this was a $300 car seat. She goes, man, that's not the right price. It's $300. And she says, well, let me check it again and scans it again, punches numbers in, scans it again. Guess what? $60. And she goes, that's not right. And the lady says, well, it's what you're paying today. It's a great deal. I, I like those deals. I uh, was traveling with the kids uh, one time up in the mountains in Maggie Valley, Riding by a sign, and it says used books. I collect old books, certain types of old books. And uh, I see, like, used books. So I'm like, oh, quick, turn. And we, we wind down this mountain road, and the sign is over. I pull into this driveway, and it's a double-wide trailer. I'm like, is this a bookstore? I walk up to it. It's like enter, open, and I go in there, and the aisles are probably two feet wide, stacked floor to ceiling of nothing but books. So I start perusing through, I'm rummaging through the books, and, and I stumble across a couple books. I paid 13 bucks and change, I remember this. And uh, I found a pamphlet I had never seen before, probably, I don't know, it's worth hundreds of dollars. So I see this thing, I'm, from 1934, July of 1934, it was a particular church bulletin of this church that um, was very instrumental in certain, I guess, theological undertakings would be a good way to say the word. So I see this pamphlet, I'm drooling all over myself, it was like $3, they stuck a tape thing on top of it, which ruins, you know, from an archival standpoint, you pull it off and you rip half the cover off. I got two other books thinking they're worth $150, $200. So I grab this stuff, walk out of the place, feeling like I just robbed the place. I sit down in the car, and to check one of the two books I got, I took the dust cover off the book. And this particular book, widely distributed, it always had a blue cover. And I had heard some archival guy say, oh no, there were some with blackboards. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. And I pull the dust cover off and the boards are jet black. Now I sold that book for $500 three days later. My buddy, who I sold it to, got 2,500 bucks for it. That's a good deal for $13. And I get to keep you know, half, half of the other stuff. That's a great feeling. That's, that's a great feeling. Um, so I, I ask you this, and it's kind of just to draw out of us, what, 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 what are the great deals we get in life? What's the best deal that you've ever come across? Just some thoughts. Just kick it around in your head. This is a... I love going through a book, chapter, line by line. Um, we're covering right now what I call the Corinthian Woodshed series. 
Um, because basically for the last, I don't know how many weeks, Paul has had um, these guys out back by the woodshed taking them to task. Next week is actually better. I think he actually takes them into the woodshed. Um, but this week, we're just back by the woodshed. And I want to pick up to kind of put this in context. And before I even say this, you know, last week it was talking about two guys suing each other in court. Christians. And I was not offered the chance to teach that passage, by the way, Dale. So you and Randy need to get with it. I'm, I'm a lawyer, by the way, so that's kind of why I joke a little bit about that. I would not have chosen to teach it, by the way, because it would seem like I would be promoting my business by saying, well, maybe they should have sued each other when the scripture says they shouldn't. So leaving that aside. Um, let's pick up, uh, if you've if you got your Bible, turn to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Um, it says this. We're going to verse 1, because I'm going to run through to kind of put it in context. Uh, when, one of you, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourself, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And we pick up in verse 9 where it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So it's, it's, we're going to put these together, and I'll explain why. So the verse 9, it says, or do you not know? And the question is a very simple question, but it needs to be addressed to kind of nail this thing to the floor. Who is the you? Is this to the church at Corinth that large? Or is he still car carrying on this uh, conversation of these two brothers who have sued themselves? You know, it's interesting because verse 8, the you is very clear. So we pick up in verse 9, and here's the question. Is there some new issue to address, or is Paul continuing on with the conversation? And I think it's pretty obvious this is, a new converse, this, this is the same conversation. Um, I read a great statement from a commentary, um, and it says this. It's the NIV actually does this, the New International Version. It says the NIV paragraph break between verse 6 and 7 is unfortunate. I just, because they're saying it, it shouldn't have been broken down. The, the parties he's talking to, it hasn't shifted. Can you take this as a declaration to the whole church as maybe a lesson? Yeah, but the conversations between these two guys. Um, so so he's, he's here telling these two brothers who are in Christ that you've got a fight between the two of you, and one clearly defrauded the other. Clearly there was some type of defrauding going on. And the believer doesn't try to reconcile the matter. He sues the guy in a secular court. And Paul's question is, this is madness among brothers. This is the equivalent of two football players out on the field playing against a team, and they start fighting among each other. That's the clearest picture I can give you. Now, if you were the opposing team and you saw this, you'd be drooling. You'd be saying, this is beautiful. This is the, this is the people we like to have for an opposition. Because these guys ha are rendered completely unable. They're incapacitated to engage in their calling as Christians when they're standing there fighting amongst each other. And that's why Paul's upset with this. 
He says, and the world watches this and you call yourself a Christian? You're kidding. In our immediate community over the last couple of years, we've seen these type of fights. And to me, there's nothing more heartbreaking. Paul says, it'd be better for you to be ripped off and scorned a fool than to step forward and muddy the name and image of Christ. Because the public does one thing. I was reading something about Westboro Baptist Church um, and a really interesting statement uh, on the person uh, that, that was running that church. And they basically made the statement that I don't believe this guy saved at all. Period. Because this was the guy who was the homosexual issue. God, and really took it to town, sadly. But, but the essence and the final analysis of our faith is a manifestation of love. That's it. If you strip it all away, and I'm not mitigating truth, I'm not mitigating a duty to, to live a life that reflects the holiness of Christ, and we're going to talk about through the balance of this morning. Um, but the fruit of hatred does not in, indicate a new birth and an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Pretty simple facts. You'll have a bad day, that's a different story. But generally speaking, your life should be manifesting um, the presence, the glory, the goodness, and the favor of the person of Jesus Christ. So we come back to this. And, and sadly, these disputes, again, like I said, in our community, they be, when it becomes a matter of public uh, record, somebody sues somebody in the court and starts making allegations against another church member, it's ugly. But we need to go home at that point. So Paul classifies these brothers as wrong and defrauding each other um, that are basically being classified with those who are classified as unrighteous or the wicked. And, and the statement then is, and such unrighteous persons shall not be part of this inheritance of the kingdom of God. And in drawing out this contrast with the godliness and the godless, the church of Corinth is going to get a lesson. So... so so the question, let me ask this initially. If you behave in a godless manner, are there consequences? The question is absolutely. Um, let, me, let me do this. Let me address this kingdom of God issue, and then we're going to circle back around to kind of close in on what the balance of the passage is meaning. You heard the statement that they, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the question really is a big, it's a good question. What is the kingdom of God? Let me give you some other scripture references. And I'm just going to go quickly through this. If you do like BibleGateway.com is a great place to go. You can type in kingdom of God in quotes and it just pulls up anything you want. So these types of word searches today, um, it's unfair that we have this research ability in the light of the historical backdrop of theologians and the work that, and the time they had to put in. I mean, what would have taken them hours and hours to do a keyword search takes me 60 seconds, literally. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So, and I'm going to piece together what the composition of this term kingdom of God is. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, there's a, there's a dimension or an element of power. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered his disciples saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born... Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So without this new birth, you're unable to see it. But by way of inference, if you are born, it is something you can see. 
John 3, 5 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, we're not looking at, this is of spirit. This is something that um, to the physical world, they're not, the unsaved physical world can't grasp or see. Romans 14, 17 says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, placing this in uh, consisting of a right being that has peace, but again, it's in a realm of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So again, a reference to something being holy in a realm of a spiritual domain. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus telling, again, this, this, this message, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the question would be, if it's at hand, how close is that? The proximity. And the answer is, is that it's within an immediate proximity. It's something that you can extend your arm out and grasp. Matthew 12, 28 says this, But if it is the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what Christ was saying is that they were saying, Oh, no, you cast out demons in the name of the devil. Well, you could, did you ever think that through, what they said, the Pharisees? They said Jesus was a devil. Do you think that ticked off his father, by the way? I mean, I got to be honest. I would have been liberal with lightning upon those declarations. Just, I'm done. And God says, no, there's, we're going to let this slide. Um, it, it, it's unbelievable. But it says that the, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, this kingdom, and in fact, has come upon you. Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only... Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Different here. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that the worldly trappings of our physical world can serve as an impediment from entering in or receiving this kingdom. Mark 10, 15. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of heaven is like, excuse me, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of heaven it's like a little child will never enter it. So he's basically saying, if you're childlike in your faith, you can receive this. And again, that boils down to faith. So the question becomes, what do they mean by the kingdom of heaven? And, and I take this view that, that sometimes when Jesus talks about a time, it may span a thousand years or 15 minutes. And I look at the kingdom of heaven as the gift of salvation fully through whether you believe in a messianic reign with Christ or through an eternal heavens and earth. It's a package of the fullness of this gift that comes through Christ. You can, you can slice that another way, and I'm not going to argue it. I'm, I just kind of wanted to broach and open that up. So the warning here that Paul gives, the unrighteous have no inheritance. Is that it? The righteous will have no inheritance concerning the kingdom of God. And I would say absolutely. So then the next question would be asked, well, what makes us righteous? Is it our works? Or is it through something Christ did on a cross? And obviously the answer is the blood of Christ gives us that righteousness. So here's a question. If one has been made righteous through the blood of Christ, he should be a new creation. Obviously this old would be gone, the new would come in. Did the Corinthian church fully grasp that concept? And the answer is no. You've got a church that basically doesn't have any of the New Testament written down in black and white. 
So the inference would be is that Paul is walking these people through what this means to be a new creation in Christ. That your behavior has to change. You have to act differently in interaction with your fellows. Your sexual behavior has to be altered. Your love for the unsaved has to take on new dimensions. There are hallmarks that reflect one who has experienced the new birth. Now, will that immediately come to the surface like a cork in water? And the answer is not always. We have to be trained in our walk, in our behavior, in that sanctification process. We need direction. And that's simply what I would submit Paul is giving to the Corinthian church at this point. So let's step back just a minute, and I want to ask this question. So if we take the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God, if you take that purely as a statement of theology, a doctrine of biblical truth, if you take that to the extreme, the question is how many of us will ever get into the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is absolutely none. So when we look at scripture, and I'm going to say this from a big picture way in which we approach the Bible, there are statements of fact and there's what I call theology. And theology re represents universal truth concerning a believer's uh, standing before God, how to come to Christ, and how to live out a Christian life. There's, there's a theology there. And then you'll have statements that have very little to do with theology. If you think this through, if you say this is the theology of the New Testament, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, we're all damned. Period. This is inconsistent, though, with massive swaths of other scripture. Because we know that righteousness, that, that through Christ, we receive his righteousness. We are seen as holy, pure, perfect, and just before a mighty God who demands perfection. So what does it mean? Can a true believer be disinherited? Let, let, me, let me make the statement that I would state that this verse is simply a factual warning and nothing more. Paul says, look at these two guys arguing and warring together with each other. And then he makes the statement, the unrighteous don't get God's kingdom. They don't inherit this eternal thing. So what he's drawing out a contrast with bad behavior and those who have nothing to do with Christ. Saying, I'd prefer it if you didn't look the same. That's what I would prefer. It's the equivalent of me saying to you this morning, if you don't know how to swim, you will drown in deep water. It's a warning. You don't know how to swim, or you're unrighteous. You'll drown if I put you in water over your head. Very simple statement. Now, is that universally true? If you don't know how to swim, you'll drown in deep water? And the answer is absolutely not. My dad tells a story, this is funny. He tells a story that when they learned to swim, an adult would come up to a four, five, six-year-old and throw him into the deep end of the pool and just step back. Got to start swinging your arms, son, you know, and, and let them flail. And a huge number of my dad's friends, he said, that's how we learned how to swim. Literally. They said, oh, we'll give you lessons. We live in such a domesticated world concern. You know, how, how I grew up. Car seats, seat belts, madness. Who would do that? I mean, it's just part of the fabric of our lands. Helmets. Well, you could just knock yourself unconscious versus needing a helmet. Why would you get a helmet? Uh, so, so this statement, again, if you don't know how to swim, you will drown in deep water. Is it a statement of fact? Yeah, it's a pretty good fact. But is it absolute truth? Is it something by which we live? It's ridiculous. The answer is obviously no. 
So that I would take as the gist of this warning where we are. So it picks up, you want to inherit this kingdom of God. And then Paul turns and says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. I want to keep an eye on my time here. Do not be deceived. There's a warning. When Paul warns us, not be not, be, do not be deceived, it means, hey, I'm going to give you a heads up. You can miss this point. Very simple. The, the essence of deception is that I don't know what's actually taking place. So when somebody warns you, they're saying, you're going to have to get some help to make sure you don't miss what I'm about to tell you. That's what he's telling him. The problem with sin is that sin blinds. I can't see the nature of my sin, the depth of my sin, the destination of my sin, the offense of my sin against a holy God. I don't get it. So unless I'm around a group of believers who are dialed in and I'm spending time in his word, um, I can convince myself into some pretty horrifically poor behavior. I'm convinced. If there are facts that we need to state today, that's what I'm convinced of with regard to myself. It says that I'm ill-equipped in and of myself to combat the problem with sin. And that is why we build hedges of protection between ourselves and others. That is why we'll learn next week we flee from sexual immorality. Because if you sit there and debate, you lose the debate. God says, run, don't debate, you go. Because the deception takes place and I can't stop it. I lie to myself. The thing about the original sin with Adam, Adam lied to himself. God didn't really mean what he said to me. That's the truth in my mind. Adam had a group of brothers. They would say, hey, bud, that's crazy. Don't eat the apple. Now, on another day of the week, Adam would probably be reminding them not to eat the apple as well. So, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. Isn't this great? I, I, I'm, I'm always so relieved um, so the question, the question is, what camp did you fall into prior to being saved, right? That's the way we approach this. Well, I did that when I, when I was unsaved, right? He's talking about those people who engage in that behavior who are not saved. So I asked this question, what category did you fall into this prior to being saved? Were you sexually immoral? You an idolater, adulterer, practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Isn't it interesting how there's not like, oh, and this one's really bad, and this one's not as bad as the other. It's just a laundry list. Isn't it great that we no longer act like rotten, old, sinful men? Because if we're engaging in all of that by inference, wouldn't it be that we want to inherit the kingdom of God? Let me say that again. If they weren't inferring that this is no longer our conduct it would infer that we are no longer going to enter the kingdom. It says we're not saved. That's the point in this passage. If you read this in context of what it's saying, it's saying that's what an unsaved person acts like. Okay? Isn't it good we don't act like that anymore? So we move on, right? Right? No, David, don't, don't worry. I'm not moving on. All right, so let me ask this question. What camp do you fall into today with regard to this laundry list? Not prior to being saved, but today as in a Christian. What, what, what part do you fall into here? And you say, Jonathan, that's crazy. Well, wait, wait, let me back up. 
Dale asked why I brought the, I, I told Dale I brought the firewood this morning. So I want you to in, uh, partake with me in something called a spiritual depravity test. Okay, so you guys, this is an interaction with me, spiritual depravity test. And here's what I need you to do. I'm going to go through each one of these, and I want you to keep score of your own spiritual depravity. I need you to give yourself a one if you're guilty for such behavior, even if ever so slightly, you must give yourself one point. Okay, so we've got nine things. You're going to put a little point by it. If you are pretty good at the particular instance of depravity, give yourself two points. Okay? And if you've committed such behavior in the last week, give yourself three points. Okay? You got it? One point slight, two points kind of not so good. Three points, you're in it last week. So, let's open up and go through this. Neither the sexually immoral. King James, I love this, uses the fornicator. So, by the way, if it's fornication, if you're married, you can put down zero in this case. Because if you were committing something, it would be called adultery, not fornication, Right? Because that's when you're married and you're doing something fishy versus not married. By the way, there are only two kinds of, of sex. There's sex in marriage and sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible. So, so if you're not married, um, I want to ask you a couple questions. Um, you say, well, I'm, I'm not doing anything inappropriate today. Um, let me ask a question. Since we came to Christ, have you ever had a sexually immoral thought, let alone view one in an inappropriate movie? Or skip that, even turning on the stupid TV set. You ever see? I would venture to say that half the Christian population here today in America can't identify what God sees as immoral when they sit in front of a TV. It, it, it doesn't even register. Nobody's home. It's just right by. But if you've been thinking an immoral thought, something sexual in nature, and you're single, God judges what? Is it the action or the heart? Is it the action or the heart? Give yourself a couple points. Nor, adult, nor idolaters. Let me, let me break this one down a little bit. Um, we don't have little idols of Buddha in our closet, do we? I don't think anyone does. Now, the closest thing I got is a hula doll who dances on the dashboard. Um, but that's, that's, not an, that's not an idol, right? Idolatry is defined as the worship of a picture or physical object as a god. Immoderate attachment or devotion to something. Now, that's interesting. Immoderate or attachment or devotion to something. My definition is this, to allocate greater weight and value to something other than God. So I say, here's God, but I give greater weight to something else. Because at that point, I'm exalting whatever that is, whether it be myself, my job, my career, my standing. So, do we at times put greater value on our stature or comfort over God? God, I've had a long week. I'm tired. My flesh needs to rest. I can't go out of my way for this person. That's crazy. Something along those lines. Do we put greater value? Do we put greater value on material security over eternal security of ourselves and others? Meaning, do, do, is our driving concern a passion for the lost? Or is it to fill the 401k? Or is it to make my house as nice as it can be? Or is it for me to have an image that makes me acceptable in the presence of a large group of people versus that burning passion for the lost? Are we preoccupied with the lost? Compare the time we spend weekly in God's word and prayer to the time we spend in front of the TV or on the internet doing secular entertainment. That's a horrifying statement. Think about it. Compare the time we spend entertaining ourselves versus seeking and petitioning and spending time with our God. 
Do we participate in exalting political figures, movie stars, music stars, theologians, or the wealthy in an unhealthy manner? See, when we are exalting them, we're giving undue deference to them that may be over God. A couple quotes from John Calvin, couldn't, couldn't miss doing this. And I'm not a big Calvin fan, by the way, but I, but I, I like, there's stuff I use. And I'm not a disfan of Calvin, I'm just not a big fan. I'm not somebody who runs around preaching John Calvin. Uh, but he does have some good quotes, two of which I use. He, he's talking about um, the heart and idolatry, and he says this, From this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Meaning my heart just pumps out idols. That's what my heart's good at doing. Um, there's another commentary where he said, every one of us, even in our mother's womb, is expert in inventing idols. That's pretty brutal. And, and to kind of back that up, Jeremiah 17.9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. So you have a problem with idolatry? A little bit? Give yourself one point. Some? Two points? Last week? Three points. Adultery. This is great. Um, I hope we don't have any adulterers here, but I don't think it really matters. Truthfully, I really don't think it matters. Matthew 5.28 tells us this. Tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, sorry guys, if anyone, any one of you look at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in her, in his, committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you've looked at somebody in the past week, Three points. Got it? A couple times the past year. Two points. Fleeting thoughts means you're too busy. One point. I'm not going to expect none from a man in here. Come on. Let's be honest. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's what we're talking about now. See, this isn't a physical litmus test to see if I match up. This is a test that if you look by the superficial veneer of it, you see, man, I've blown this one. But let me keep on going. Practice homosexuality. Ladies are exempt, of course, from this because they talk about males who practice homosexuality or sodomites. Well, I guess you could go there with that. Um, but it kind of up, opens up the whole playing field here. There's, there's, there's some commentaries that talk about um, nor homosexuality, nor sodomites. Some talk about male prostitutes, and some say practice homosexuality. I was thinking about this with Paul. He probably thinks homosexuals don't do it well because he's telling them to practice. He's not telling them, but he talks about practicing homosexuality, right? It's ongoing behavior. Now, this is interesting, and I want to throw this out because I thought it was, it, it, it infers that if you don't practice homosexuality and you have that tendency or that desire that it's not an offense toward God until it's actually something that's the behaviors engaged in like an alcoholic thinking about a drink does it offend God no but he takes the drink we're in trouble actions Kate my wife jokes about this that homosexuality is the favorite sin of the white heterosexual male preacher in America because it's the one sin that at least some of them Claim from a high standing they can't commit. And it it's horrifies me when I hear that. That it's a, when, when we segregate sin and then we break one off that seems a little worse in everybody's opinion. And then we judge and condemn them failing to acknowledge the depth of our depravity on 17 other frontiers. That's the problem. 
no, no real discrimination here with regard to homosexuality and adultery, at least according to the Bible I'm reading. All right, give yourself some points there. Nor thieves, nor thieves. We don't steal a doxa, do we? We don't ever steal a doxa, right? The word steal is really a problem. How about, let me, let me ask it this way. You ever receive something that you give less than full value in the exchange? It's called theft. It's called stealing. It makes you a thief. Probably makes you a liar, too, because you wouldn't admit it to start with. So, having said that, do you, um, you ever take an extra break at work? They say 10 minutes, you take 15 minutes. Do you ever do things at work, spend a little too much time on the phone with a friend? That if your boss were standing there, they would say, get off the phone. What's that called? You're stealing. Because you're saying in return for my presence in doing the duties you assign, you'll give me money. But I'm not going to fully do what you're doing, but I'm going to take the same amount of money you promised to start with. That's called theft. Very simple. And I know nobody does this. Me personally, I believe that all employers should provide free postage to all their employees. If you have that little stamp gizmo machine, doesn't that, isn't there like a sticker on it that says free to all office employees, right? Doesn't it say that? No. No, it doesn't. Give yourself some points. Nor the greedy. Nobody's greedy either, right? You want to see the real spirit of a Christian? Rip them off. Take their money from them. And watch how ticked off they get. And what it indicates is that they don't trust God as their provider. Therefore, they have to take matters into their own hands and go after somebody else and force them to do what they're saying rather than say, God, you'll provide. You've done a great job with me to start with. I'll trust that you'll continue. Do we tithe? Now, tithing is an issue um, because some people say, well, it's not in the New Testament. In principle, it's a great check on materialism, personally. Um, a lot of people will adopt a 10%. If you are offended by me suggesting you start with 10%, I'm okay with 15 or 20. I know DOXA will not return your check. I'm, I'm sure of that, right, Dale? We will not return your check. Um, we talk about money and making financial sacrifices as Christians as if we're talking about somebody else's sex life in their presence. It's not good taste. It's not good taste. Well, wait a minute. How much of my life among my brothers is fair game for being scrutinized and for holding me accountable? Does my wallet have an exemption on spiritual accountability? Whew. Talk about problems biblically. If you, if you do a word search with money, how often that issue comes up, where it interferes with man's walk with the Lord, it is huge. To be greedy is simply to want the most and the best for ourselves at the expense of someone else. And that starts with Christ. Give yourself some points. Nor drunkard. I can say that I get zero points on this question. I'm so proud of myself. The date I got saved, I never took a drink since that time. Doesn't that make me look great? It's lunacy. It's lunacy. It's lunacy to compliment myself for something that God did for me with regard to my self-control and behavior. If God has cleansed you in an area of your life, rejoice. Don't pat yourself on the back. Rejoice that he's liberated you from an affliction like smoking. Boy, I smoked as a Christian for years. I can't pat myself on the back at all. You minus his grace, I'm back in the throes of a toxic cesspool of being addicted to a hundred different things. So why am I not that person today? Simply an extra measure of grace in my life. Revilers. Now the word is slander, or it, it could be slander. Revile means to speak, speak about 
Someone or something in a very critical or insulting way. Slander means a malice, false, or defamatory statement or report. So we, do we ever talk about someone in a critical or insulting way? Right? We don't do that, right, as Christians? Let me ask it differently. Do we gossip? Ever? Do we gossip? Do we ever talk about another person who's not in our presence? And if they were in our presence, we would squirm if they listened to the words we uttered. It's a good way to tell what you just said was wholly inappropriate. I have a rule, personally, it's a great rule, you can adopt it. That when somebody, up, somebody gets up and leaves the table, they are no longer fair game to be speaking about them outside of their presence. It's too easy for me for somebody to say one thing and for me to just follow through. They say a little thing that's just slightly derogatory. I say, oh, yeah, and guess what? Uh, I'm airing it. I'm airing it. Have we spoken of someone lately uh, where if they had been present, we would be uncomfortable to look them in the eye and repeat the identical words? Give yourself some points. Nor swindlers. This was great. King James uses the word extortioner. It almost sounds like you're an organized crime. That's not what they're inferring. They're referring to us once again. Let me explain this. Easy. A swindler is somebody who manipulates others to get what they want through deception. Have you ever done that? Let me ask it a different way. Well, you know how you've been swindled? Is that you become angry or upset with yourself for having capitulated to what the swindler wanted and you gave them. You're angry saying, I didn't want to do that. And they're walking away with my money. By the way, some of us in the Christian community have mastered this. Let me ask it a simplified, dummy-down way. Do we manipulate people to get what we want? Do we manipulate people to get what we want? It's called swindling. Give yourself extra points. So how did you do on the test? How did you do? If, if you can't count above 10, you can ask your neighbor to help you. It's okay with me. I have no problem with that. I want to give you bad news now. If your score is in excess of zero, and it comes up to 29... You have won a free trip, all expense paid, to hell for eternity. There you go. It's a pretty good deal, huh? So what's the best deal you ever got? I've gotten some great deals, but I'm going to tell you the best deals to me are when they're for free. I'm going to tell you something. This is really cool to do if you've got young kids and you feel like people forget your birthday. When my kids were younger, on my birthday, I would buy them gifts and I would take them somewhere fun. And it's shocking how nobody ever forgot my birthday. Just never. It's John, Uncle Jonathan's birthday. I like took all my nieces and nephews to Chuck E. Cheese one year. Everyone's having a party. And you want to hear something really interesting? If everybody around you is having a fantastic time, what type of day do you have? So I took the kids one, on one of my birthdays. I went to uh, take them to Family Kingdom, the water park. And it's weird. I walked up to this lady, and I had a sense it was on my birthday. It was for my birthday. She wasn't going to charge me. Now, I don't know this lady. I walk up, four kids, one adult. She says, that'll be $36. We're not charging you today. Can you believe that? I'm like, yes. Yes. It's my birthday and it's free. You know what free means? I don't have to sweat to acquire it. That's why I love free things. I was doing this one year for our office. We were getting Rio's $100 gift certificates to give to people who make a big difference in our work, by the way. I mean, they just, they're great office managers and people who can kind of get us stuff when it's needed. 
And I remember putting them in envelopes, writing things with green with envy. It is green with envy that I'm giving these gift certificates. And the next day I get a card, a thank you card. And inside of it, guess what? A hundred smacker Rio gift certificate award. Now I'm gonna tell you this, I'll confess. The first time I went to Rio's, I had an intimate experience with gluttony, never experienced on any other scale in my past. It was fabulous and I didn't want to stop. I mean, I experienced, I feel sick. Yes, I'll have more, please. I mean, that, that's craziness. My birthday this past year, my mother has never given me money for a birthday. She gave me 100 bucks this year for my birthday. Yes, yes, no sweat, and I get cash. That's, that's the deal. It's simply, a cash gift simply reflects you receive buying power without sweat. It is that I get the benefit without sacrifice. You know, the world tells us lies all the time. One of the lies we hear, nothing in life is for free. Have you ever heard that? That's an offense against the core of our faith. It's a patent lie. It's a lie with regard to us and what we receive as Christians. As such, some of you, and still are, I add, that's me, not, not Paul, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Better statement here in Romans chapter 3, 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, note this word, freely by his grace. So this is why we come to Doxa today. To rejoice today that we are made holy. To recall as a collective body how we have been redeemed. To come together in awe and amazement that even though I have passed the spiritual depravity test in 3D color, that in Christ God sees me as having a zero on that test. You know, talk about rejoicing. The greatest gift a Christian can receive is free because we could never do anything to acquire it. How many of us go hunt for $100 million airplanes? None of us, why? Because you can't afford it. There are things that are beyond our grasp. And for sinners, the only way to receive it, this redemption is as a gift. To be washed, to be cleansed from the dirtiness of my sin, to have the stench of my guilt removed, to have the stains of my fallen human nature extracted from the core of my being, to be sanctified, to be absolved of wrongdoing and wrongbeing to be set apart as holy, to take on a family likeness of God's own son, Jesus, to be seen by God as having no charge or accusation, to be justified. What does that mean, to be justified? To be declared good, to be found innocent and guiltless, to be upheld as pure. By the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on a cross through his spirit, I am made not only a child of God, but a member of his family and a joint heir to the kingdom of God. Free, free by God's grace and Jesus' effort. I am made right with God. 
So as we participate in communion maybe this morning, boy, rejoice with me that we come as we are and be accepted as one of God's own. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that, that it's clear that there is nothing we bring to the table to enhance our standing before a holy God. Um, Lord, I, I pray that, that, that this morning those who came here shackled in sin and guilt and remorse and self-pity and fear and anger and bitterness, that, uh, that they'd catch just a glimpse, just a glimpse that it's okay that it's been made right, and that you've done that for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.